Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 39. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at two very different works. The first of these is the highly unusual choral fantasy, Opus 80. It was composed for the very ambitious benefit concert of 1808, which also included the 5th and 6th symphonies, the 4th piano concerto, parts of the Mass in C, and a concert aria. Conventional wisdom suggests that the work was created to share the stage with these celebrated works, since a chorus would already be available and Beethoven wanted to take advantage of its presence by coming up with another work which made use of it. But Beethoven also wanted a chance to demonstrate his pianistic skills before the large audience, and so designed a work that began with a first movement for piano alone, apparently improvised by Beethoven for the occasion. Later, when preparing the work for publication, Beethoven provided a fully notated movement for the piano, but one which also seems very improvisatory in style. To what extent it may incorporate elements from his original improvisation is unknown. The opening movement for piano alone is in C minor, common time and marked adagio, it begins dramatically, with the assertion of the tonic note low in the bass clef, quickly followed by an ascending 16th note staccato arpeggio of the tonic chord, followed by a slurred decrescendoing descent of that chord in eighth notes, all of them pedaled together to create a massive sonority. The first measure is immediately repeated, and then a similar figure is repeated on F minor and measure 3. The fourth measure keeps the pattern more or less intact, but introduces a dominant seventh chord of E-flat major, and Beethoven is already on his way to his first modulation. That new dominant seventh is prolonged for four full measures, first with a series of undulating 32nd notes played legato in thirds, softly, and then even more softly, a series of staccato broken chord arpeggios, which hint briefly at other keys, as we seem to transform from stern drama to coquettishness in the space of only nine measures. We do finally realize that modulation to E-flat in the process, but it's not long before we're headed back to C minor. Thank you. 
Of course, relatively unexpected mood changes of this type are by no means uncommon in an improvisatory introduction. And, as you heard at the end of my excerpt, there's another shift right around the corner as we crescendo into a new section. It's not completely new because it begins with the arpeggio pattern heard in the opening measure, but it certainly starts in a new key, E major, although that key is made dubious soon enough by what follows. The E major flips to E minor, and soon we hear a series of fortissimo diminished seventh chords delivered in staggered syncopations. These sharply accented chords then pass into a long section of flowing harp-like arpeggios, which imply a series of dominant seventh chords, eventually settling down on a dominant seventh chord on D. Here's the first part of this section. After a free cadenza-like passage, we're introduced to what we probably hear as the first really distinctive thematic idea. We're in E-flat major at this point, although we don't stay there very long, not a surprise, and the new melody, really more of a repeated fragment, is initially heard in the left hand between broken chords in the right. It has a strong rhythmic profile, combining staccato and accented eighths, thirty-second notes, and sixteenth notes. As the motive is moved around from voice to voice, it's surrounded by layers of faster-moving lines above and below it, until it eventually all but disappears. This section concludes on a cadenza-like swirl of a dominant seventh chord on D, the dominant of the dominant in the original key of C minor. We're going to jump ahead now to the second movement, indicated as the finale. This movement, which subdivides into a number of separate parts, begins with a puzzling little theme in C minor, initially in the low strings. It moves up the scale from the dominant note for two measures, implying a dominant seventh chord in the process, and features a pair of dotted eighth sixteenth note figures. It then descends in the next three measures, making its way back down to its original starting point. I'm referring to the theme as puzzling because it's not altogether clear how seriously we should take it. Is Beethoven establishing an ominous mood here, or is it more tongue-in-cheek? 
The use of staccato marks suggests the latter to me, but some listeners hear it differently. This five-bar theme, which we'll refer to as F1, Finale 1, is responded to by the pianist with a poignant little sigh of a response, Mark Poco Adagio, which features an octave leap, a pair of turns, and a fermata on the final note. The piano sigh ends simply enough on a dominant chord, but not without visiting a number of non-harmonic tones along the way. This exchange between the pianist and orchestra continues in much the same manner, although the original theme is soon taken over by the violas and second violins. The piano then offers another sighing figure, this time suggesting F minor, after which the woodwinds jump in with their own variant of the theme. It's all very quiet at this point, and it remains so until the statements of the theme start piling up and we crescendo into the next section. This new section in 2-4, and now C major, is introduced by a rather dramatic gesture, horns and oboes alternating short motives in fifths, fluctuating between loud and soft. It soon becomes clear that this is not so much the beginning of a new section as a transition to a new section. And the new section is an important one because it introduces the new theme, we'll call it F2, based on a then unpublished song, Gegenliebe, dating from 1794-95. This new theme turns out to be the source of most of what happens from this point on. Several commentators on the choral fantasy have made the point that this theme bears a notable resemblance to the famous Ode to Joy hymn melody from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So before I play the section that first introduces the theme, I'm going to take a minute to compare the two. Here's an example in which you'll hear, in a simple piano version, the melody from the finale of the Ninth Symphony, and then, after a short pause, the melody introduced at this point in the choral fantasy. I moved the key of the choral fantasy theme up from C major to D major, so both examples are in the same key. And I've also slowed the typical tempo slightly for the choral fantasy, so an easier comparison can be made. So, Ode to Joy theme first, and then choral fantasy theme second.
let's first address the commonalities. Both melodies are in duple meter, although the Ode to Joy theme is notated in common time, and the choral fantasy melody, F2, as I referred to it earlier, is written in 2-4 time. They are certainly similar types of melodies. They both move mostly by step, with repeated notes of the same value, quarter notes in the first, eighth notes in the second. The joy theme tends to sound more hymn-like, in part because of its usually slower tempo, although you'll find some performances that move along quite briskly. Both themes consist of four phrases, the second a close variant of the first, the third introducing a little more variety in terms of rhythmic figures and intervals, and the fourth an ornamented variant of the first phrase, finally returning to tonic. Both begin on the third scale degree. The melodic contours, the shape of the melodies, are overall somewhat similar. The joy theme begins by ascending gently, but after three notes, starts to descend by step. F2 begins by ascending a single note and then begins a six-note descent. If you leave out the first note of the joy theme, there is some agreement with the pattern exhibited by F2. But of course, leaving out the initial note changes the character of the joy theme considerably. The greatest similarities between the two themes occur in measures 3 and 4 of both. The third and fourth measures of the joy theme repeat the tonic note twice and then move three notes up from the tonic to the third scale degree, then descend by a single note before returning to the third scale degree. The third and fourth measures of F2 do exactly the same thing. There are naturally some distinct differences between the two melodies. The ornamental turns and trills in F2 and the one faster passage in 16th notes have no equivalent in the joy melody. But of course, F2 was designed for an initial presentation by the piano, and those are the sorts of ornaments and figures which would much more readily be associated with the piano. And speaking of pianistic devices, as you'll hear in a minute, my example actually leaves out a chunk of the first appearance of the F2 theme. After the fermata, which appears five measures before the end, there is a little cadenza-like flourish which I omit completely in my example. Still, there are clearly enough similarities between the two themes that any number of commentators have referenced them. And Beethoven himself freely admitted that he thought of this work as, in some ways, a precursor to the finale of the Ninth Symphony. Here, then, is the actual presentation of F2 by the piano, the right-hand melody accompanied with broken chords in the piano left hand, and with fairly rudimentary harmonic support in the horns. You'll also hear the mini-cadenza passage that I omitted in my example. What follows is the first of several variations of the theme, this time provided by the flute, with very simple accompaniment from the piano. The original harmonic progression is reproduced, and the flute engages in a series of decorative 16th note figures embellishing the melody, which is still easily heard beneath the filigree.
The next variation is provided by a pair of oboes playing together primarily in staccato thirds and sixths. It's in very much the same style as the first variation, light and airy, so we'll skip over it. The next pairs two clarinets with bassoon, the melody played in lyrical eighth notes this time, and in general staying closer to the original form of the melody. The strings, one soloist from each section, now take their turn. Here's the first part. The entire orchestra joins in to finish off this variation and then continues on to another zestful version of the theme. The pianist then enters with a highly florid cadential tag, actually employing the 4-1 plagal cadence version, with the orchestra providing punctuating chords at key points. Soon the key shifts to D major, which quickly shows itself to be the dominant of G major, and the pianist's repeated 16th note triplets in the right hand are heard against regular 16ths in the left hand and occasional contributions from the orchestra drawing on the original theme. After another brief cadenza-like passage, we shift gears dramatically, changing to cut time, allegro molto, and back to C minor. And that's where we'll pick it up. Here's the opening part of this new section. Initially, it would seem to have nothing to do with our theme, but parts of it do eventually emerge from the bluster. As you heard, the theme is present, but obviously transformed considerably. Eventually, the pace becomes less manic, the key shifts to B major, and after a brief transition, the theme appears in a more clearly recognizable form, although still focusing on the descending line from the opening measures. After a while, that descending line disappears as the passage develops into one of thunderous bravura display. Here's a part of it.
This is followed by prolonged cadential activity, another trill, and a fermata. We then encounter a new variation in 6-8 time, marked adagio ma non troppo, piano and dolce. It's introduced by a gentle piano trill and features a rustic little melody shared by the woodwinds, which itself echoes the original theme. References to the original melody can also be heard in the highly florid piano lines and eventually in the low strings as well. The middle phrase of the theme is addressed clearly by the clarinets with bassoon accompaniment, but the main focus is on the highly expressive flights of the piano right hand with its mixture of legato and staccato articulations. Here's the first part of the variation. The variation seems ready to die away softly on a series of trills when a series of short dotted note figures begin to appear, in the piano left hand, but also in the bassoon and horns as well. These provide a sneak preview into the next highly contrasting variation in 2-4 time, F major, marked Marcia Asai Vavace, and featuring a full military complement of oboes, bassoons, horns, trumpets, and timpani. These combine to give a rousing dotted note version of the theme, something of a preview of the so-called Turkish March variation of the joy theme in the Ninth Symphony. The mood shifts again as the piano asserts control. The military-style dotted rhythms continue for a while, but the dynamic level is reduced to pianissimo and the texture thinned dramatically. 
Eventually, the pianist introduces a lyrical flow of eighth notes in block chords, which makes its way through a series of new tonal centers, starting with D-flat major and ending with another swirling, cadenza-like passage. Following the cadenza-like passage, we hear a perhaps surprising return of theme F1 in C minor, slightly varied and truncated in the low strings, down half a step from the original, but clearly recognizable. It's interrupted briefly by another dramatic cadenza-like swirl, but then returns to finish off the transition with a final statement. And this delivers us to the last section of the finale. It begins with another series of harp-like ascending 16th note arpeggios, which, after two measures, pass into a series of staccato arpeggios. We're in C major, but initially all we hear is the prolongation of the dominant chord. The horns and clarinets now return with their open fifth motive as the piano arpeggios continue. And then, another surprise, the voices take center stage, initially in the form of the four soloists singing as a quartet. The author of the text is not certain, although it deals with the power of the arts to unify and inspire all people, in a manner not unlike Goethe's text employed in the Ninth Symphony. Here's a translation of the final stanza. Greatness, once it has pierced the heart, then blooms anew in all its beauty. Once one's being has taken flight, a choir of spirits resounds in response. 
Accept then, you beautiful souls, joyously the gift of high art. When love and strength are united, divine grace is bestowed upon man. While the text may be something like Goethe's, Beethoven was by no means enamored of it. It was put together hastily, like everything else about the composition and performance of this work apparently, and Beethoven later suggested to his publisher that he might want to substitute another text as long as the word craft or strength was given a prominent position. Back to the music itself. Now, shorn of its original pianistic flourishes, although accompanying flourishes still play an important role, the theme now sounds more than ever like the Ninth Symphony Joy theme, as, for example, when the entire chorus takes on the melody, fully harmonized and amply fortified by the orchestra. But the pianist is not done with solo contributions. As the chorus concludes its rousing rendition of the theme, it engages in another series of cadential tags, again employing the plagal cadence version, which are freely embellished by the pianist, which now commands the spotlight, albeit gently, as the chorus quiets to piano. When the chorus ultimately lapses altogether, after a modulation to G major, and the soloist quartet is again put in charge, the pianist remains active with pulsating octave leaps in 16th notes and later 32nd note arpeggios. All of this has proceeded fairly quietly to this point, but when the chorus enters again, we begin to crescendo and we head to the final section, something of a coda, in cut time, C major and marked presto. And now we hear more bravura contributions by the piano, ascending quarter note triplet bass scale patterns with doubled octaves. That may be just about the last solo hurrah for the pianist, but the chorus and orchestra are far from finished. They combine for a huge climax on the word craft or strength, which is intoned on a powerful, unexpected, and sustained E-flat major chord, and which is resolved back to a C major chord fortissimo, led in by a robust timpani roll for even greater effect. Thank 
this would surely seem to indicate that the end is near, but not quite yet. Employing a strategy he has used before, Beethoven backs away from the final cadence, suggesting a key change to G major, although it turns out to be transitory, and brings back the solo quartet for a final curtain call. The chorus then returns for the final time, with the orchestra fully engaged, and we hear what is basically a repeat of the dramatic harmonic gesture on the word craft before we really do begin to head toward the final series of cadences, given over to the orchestra, but with the soloist providing a series of ascending arpeggios embellishing the final cadence. It's certainly an energetic conclusion, and history might have been kinder to this work if we did not have the finale of the Ninth Symphony to compare it with. Beethoven certainly deserves credit for the boldness of his experiment here, but the work does not seem to have been greeted with much enthusiasm. I've already alluded to the fact that the work was completed hastily, and the rehearsals, for which many of the singers were not present, seems to have been rather haphazard. The soprano soloist was replaced at the last minute, and her replacement was not quite up to the job. But in the performance, it was probably Beethoven himself who created the most problems by repeating a section of the score to the great bafflement of the orchestra members who were not expecting it, causing a breakdown and necessitating a restart at one point. It could hardly have gone worse, and as the last work on a long program, it did little to improve the public's opinion of the composer. But if the choral fantasy turned out to be something of a disappointment, the cello sonata number no. 3 in A major did not. The sonata was completed in 1808 and published a year later. Beethoven's last cello sonatas, two of them contained in Opus 5, date back to 1796, and while they were by no means devoid of charming elements, some of which I discuss in episode 6, they were youthful works which still had the feel of piano sonatas with the cello frequently, although not always, restricted to a supporting role. Such was not the case for cello sonata number 3, however. The work, as we'll see in a minute, begins with cello alone, and the cello plays a very important role throughout, integrated with the piano in myriad ways which no other cello sonata of that period comes close to matching. Of course, it's only fair to admit that there were very few other cello sonatas to compare it with at that point. Neither Mozart nor Haydn had embraced the genre in the later classic period, and few other composers had made the attempt. But just as Beethoven's violin sonatas had over the years developed a much more sophisticated interplay between the piano and solo instrument, we see the same dynamic present in cello sonata number no. 3 compared to his earlier efforts. The opening movement of the sonata is in cut time and allegro ma non troppo. 
and features the cello alone, Mark Dolce, delivering the first six-bar phrase of a soft but noble theme. We've seen a number of opening melodies based in various rhythmic configurations on the tonic triad. This one is a little different. It starts with the leap of a fifth from the tonic note to the fifth scale degree and moves up a step to the sixth scale degree, all in longer note values. The next part of the phrase begins on the third scale degree, leaps back up to the dominant note, and then begins a meandering descent in quarter notes, ending on a sustained lower dominant note. After the sustained dominant note, the piano enters with a contrasting six-bar phrase. The first two measures include an ascending A major triad, the next two repeat the idea up an octave, and the last two introduce dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythms and trills. The phrase ends on a dominant chord with a trill, fermata, and cadenza-like descending scale. This is followed by a repeat of both phrases of the theme, with the parts reversed, and the piano part introducing some rapid figuration patterns in the accompaniment. Once again, we conclude on the dominant with a little cadenza passage, this time by the cellist. This seems clearly enough to be the end of the first subject, so it would be reasonable to expect a modulatory transition at this point, according to common practice for a sonata form movement. Of course, by now, we're certainly used to Beethoven not following common practice in these matters, but most listeners were probably a little surprised by what they heard next. It's the sudden plunge into A minor that would most likely have caught Beethoven's listeners by surprise. You would normally expect a gradual modulation from the original key to the new key, but there's nothing gradual about this. The fact that it makes use of a variant of the opening bars of the first subject is not a great surprise. The first three bars of the original here squeezed into two measures first in the piano and then in the cello, and adorned with a number of sforzando accents not heard in the original, rather sedate version of the theme. The triplets are new as well, first in the piano accompaniment and later in the cello. 
as are the repeated slurred ascending half-steps in the cello, which enter after six measures and begin directing us toward E minor. But we don't end up in E minor, but rather E major, which is the dominant of the original key of A major, and in fact, the normal destination for a second subject. The new theme is pleasant, if unremarkable, with two contrasting components, both played softly a series of flowing eighth-note scale lines from the cello, which present against a much slower-moving, thinly-textured idea in the piano, which begins with a descending E major triad and continues to rely on descending triadic motion as it proceeds. After eight measures and ending back on the E major tonic chord, the second part of the theme is introduced as we move temporarily toward the subdominant chord of A major with a new motive. It's brief, but highly expressive, even a little nostalgic in its use of chromaticism, shared between cello and piano. Then the first part of the theme returns, back in E major, with the cello and piano parts reversing roles the piano assuming the ascending passages in eighth notes, sometimes doubled in tenths, and the cello exploiting the piano's original melody. The parts stay switched as we again hear the second part of the theme, which comes to a close on the dominant chord in E major. That little sforzando bump you heard at the end of my last excerpt signaled the beginning of the closing section theme. It's an interesting one, which broadens out quickly, again marked by numerous sforzando accents, dotted note rhythms, and a clever chromatic chord progression. After starting out simply enough by alternating tonic and dominant seventh chords in the first two measures, Beethoven diversifies a bit in the third, by tossing in a subdominant chord. And then, in the fourth measure, he introduces a surprising chromatic chord, a secondary dominant chord that tonicizes another secondary dominant seventh chord, that leads to another secondary dominant, and then another, all resolving very quickly from one to the next, the issue further complicated by the use of accented nonharmonic tones. But we're back in E major soon enough for the cello to take up the theme, which it does against an increasingly busy piano accompaniment, based primarily on 16th note arpeggio patterns. This flows into a brief codetta, where piano and cello exchange triplet bass scale passages and, after a pause for two measures of piano trills, reintroduces a bit of the first subject 
piano and dolce. Here is the closing section going into the codetta and taking us to the end of the exposition. I'm only going to play the first part of the development section. It begins by referencing the opening intervals of the first subject as it moves to F-sharp minor. The dotted rhythm figures from the second phrase of the first theme are featured prominently. And then Beethoven introduces a somewhat new thematic idea of particular interest, which then dominates for several measures. This new theme is clearly related to measures 3 and 4 of the first subject, but it seems that there's more to it than that. Angus Watson, whose comments on Beethoven's chamber works are always insightful, makes the point that this theme is almost identical to one heavily exploited in the aria S is full Brach, all is fulfilled from Bach's St. John's Passion. Now, the pattern of intervals involved in these two melodies is not remarkable in and of itself, and a listener might well be disposed to consider the similarity between them a coincidence. But as Watson has pointed out, Beethoven wrote on one of the copies of the work the phrase translated as amid tears and grief, suggesting that Beethoven was aware of the connection and might have used this theme consciously in memory of Julia von Breuning, the daughter of a dear friend of his who had recently died at the age of 19. There are certainly other points of interest in the remainder of the development section and recapitulation, but we are going to move on now to the scherzo movement. Scherzo movements are usually placed third in sequence rather than second, 
but in this case the slow movement takes on a somewhat unusual function, so Beethoven decided to place it right before the finale. The opening scherzo section is in A minor, tilting periodically toward C major, and it is not a very complex one, but it is all about melodic cross rhythms and across-the-bar ties. Here's the first part. As you heard at the end of my excerpt, after 30 measures, and after having arrived at the key of E minor, the melody in the cello changes from cross rhythms and staccatos to a much more sustained line featuring descending sixths as the main motivic element. The piano right hand, however, continues the staccato articulations with a series of short motives which gradually move up the scale. The left hand echoes the longer note values, generally dotted half notes, and descending sixths of the cello. Eventually, this section comes to a close with everyone returning to staccato quarter notes and, after a well-placed measure of silence, a dominant chord in C major. We then return to a cleverly reconfigured version of the first part of the scherzo, with its across-the-bar syncopations, although this time starting in C major, begun by the piano, but with frequent exchanges of motives between piano and cello. Then the original theme comes back in A minor, with cello and piano right hand rhythmically coordinated, but with a new, much busier piano left hand accompaniment in eighth notes. And this takes us to the end of the scherzo section, which trails away quietly with a series of repeated half-steps in the piano. The trio in A major provides contrast on two levels. The first is in the form of a lilting eight-bar phrase introduced by the cello, initially in double-stop sixths, and repeated in a variant by the piano a little later. The second is a repeated alternation between A, the tonic note in the new key, played on the first beat of the measure, and B, the note above it, played on the third beat. We heard this first in the transition from the scherzo section to the trio section, and it's an idea that Beethoven refuses to let go of, doubling up on the pattern, actually tripling up on it, in eighth notes in the piano left hand and later in the cello. Here's the first part of the trio. Thank you. 
The scherzo theme returns twice more, and the trio once more. It's a quirky little movement, purposely so, but an excellent way to mediate between the noble but generally restrained first movement and the delicately emotional adagio that follows it. That adagio movement in E major is surprisingly short, and as such, it's often described more as a slow introduction to the finale. And yet, it seems like a self-contained movement as far as it goes. So its relationship to the finale is anything but clear-cut. In 2-4 time and marked Adagio Cantabile, it begins as a lovely duet between piano and cello, often moving together in thirds or sixths. Halfway through the 18-measure movement, the cello takes over the melody, hovering over a piano accompaniment of broken chords. After six measures, the cello begins to wander away from that melody, becoming hesitant and repeating itself, leading up to a brief cadenza, which then launches into the finale. The finale is a cheerful and extremely likable movement. It's in cut time, back in A major, and marked allegro vivace. The first subject, played pianissimo in the cello against repeated block chords in the piano, is simple but effective. The melody begins on the third scale degree with a series of four lyrical quarter notes leading to the tonic. The momentum picks up considerably in the third and fourth bars, with the introduction of a new figure in eighth notes, slurs on the first two notes, staccatos on the second two, which moves down the scale before being led back up by a group of ascending sixteenth notes which launch us into the next phrase, a phrase which duplicates the first for the first three bars before ending on a sustained tonic note. As you heard at the end of my excerpt, 
the piano right-hand pattern of ascending broken thirds takes us into the next piano-led second statement of the theme, still soft and marked dolce. The melody is almost identical, although obviously played in a higher octave, but the accompaniment has lightened a bit to broken chord patterns against a sustained tonic note low in the cello's range. The harmonic background is similar here, but not exactly the same, and there's a particularly nice harmonic touch in measure 3, where the bass line of the left-hand accompaniment moves down by step to introduce in passing a poignant little chromatic chord underneath the melody. The piano's version of the theme ends with a flurry of sixteenth notes that lets us know we have arrived at the modulatory transition that will take us to the key of E major. Considering how energetic and rhythmically aggressive the transition eventually becomes, it's all the more surprising when we encounter the highly contrasting second subject. It's in E major, although that's not always obvious. It begins with the cello alone, marked dolce, high in its range, leaping up an octave from E via a grace note, bending down a step to D sharp before returning to E, and then descending a minor seventh all the way down to F sharp. At that point, the piano enters, more block chords, but very quietly, to conclude the phrase. It ends on a chord that technically would have to be described as an F sharp minor seventh chord. But what it sounds like, with this spacing and in this context, is an A major chord cradling a gentle dissonance. The cello then repeats the opening motive, and it's again responded to by block chords in the piano. But the bass line now begins a step higher, and the effect is quite different, as we begin to move toward a dominant chord in the new key. Then the cello's opening phrase, in varied form, is taken up again by both cello and piano as we head toward the conclusion of this very wistful second subject and toward the closing section but the very frisky closing section is interrupted after a solid forte piano downbeat accent by an unaccompanied piano motive, later shared with the cello, based loosely on the first bar of the second subject, which prolongs a dominant seventh on E, for the purpose, naturally, of getting us ready for the repeat, which will return us to A major.
The development section, not a lengthy one, seems to fluctuate between summoning up a sense of mystery on the one hand and the cheerful exuberance of the first subject on the other. The recapitulation adds some novel touches, and Watson, among others, finds the coda to be of particular interest. And, of course, the cello sonata in A major was a successful work, popular from the beginning with musicians and lovers of chamber music its only point of controversy being perhaps its abbreviated slow movement, not being allowed to thoroughly expand on its great potential. And with that, we're going to close this episode. In our next, we'll take a look at Beethoven's Extraordinary Symphony No. 6 in F Major, Opus 68, The Pastoral Symphony. <laughs> 